Easter is an important event. Uh, it's a pretty big deal. It still fills me with a degree of awe. And when you're the pastor and it's Easter, everybody already knows what you're going to talk about. Christmas and Easter are pretty big giveaways about what's coming. Surprise again, right? So some preachers kind of struggle with the whole year after year thing about that, and that has been me for some years. But it's also that time when we know everybody's heard a little bit about this thing, and we get to repeat it, we get to talk about it, this thing that changes so much. And so at Easter, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But the, the point of Easter is actually, it, it leads us to a, the answer to a question that I think everybody should ask. I, I don't want to say it's the most important question in the world because, well, you may disagree, but I won't go that far, but it's a really, really important question. It's a question everybody should ask. If you haven't asked it since you were a little kid, or maybe you haven't asked it since you've walked away from faith, or maybe you just haven't asked it in a long time, even though you are a person full of faith, you should ask it, and you, you should answer it. you you, you got to wrestle with this one and figure out what, what the answer for you is. And Easter points to this question. Are you ready for it? Who is Jesus? The resurrection is what convinced his first century followers that he was the Jewish Messiah, that he was the Son of God, that he was God in a body. Uh, It wasn't his teaching that convinced him. It wasn't even his other tricks or his other miracles, depending on how you interpret those things, that convinced them. It was the resurrection. And the resurrection has been convincing people ever since. But if this is your first time with us here at Church on Main Street or Church Online, here's something that you need to know about us. We don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead because the Bible tells us so. It's way better than that. It's way more substantial than that. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead because a first century follower of Jesus named Matthew documented it. He documented the life of Jesus and he documented the resurrection. We believe because a first century man, a Greek man named Mark, a friend of Peter, got the story out of Peter and concluded that in the first century, that Peter was telling the truth, and and that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And we believe it because a doctor named Luke, who was also a Greek, who traveled around the area of Judea and traveled around the world with the apostle Paul, came to the conclusion that he'd met enough people who'd seen the resurrected Jesus, that Jesus was alive. He, He gave us an account, and we call it the Gospel of Luke. And at the beginning of that gospel, he says to the person that he was writing it to, O most excellent Theophilus, I have sat down like many have to give an orderly account of the events that took place among us. And we believe because the apostle Peter wrote two letters and he left those with the first century church and he declared in them that Jesus rose from the dead. And we believe that Jesus rose from the dead because James, the brother of Jesus, concluded that his brother was his Lord. What would your brother have to do to convince you that he was your Lord? And, and James did not believe that Jesus was his Lord when Jesus was doing his earthly ministry. He, he was not impressed by Jesus' sermons, evidently. Uh, he was not impressed by those tricks, these, these miracles, these supposed stories of miracles. 
But we find out that James shows up as the pastor of the church in Jerusalem and he is stoned to death because he will not go along with the religious tradition because he now insists that his brother, his crucified brother, rose from the dead and is his Lord. And we believe because the Apostle Paul, who stepped onto the pages of history as someone who is committed to doing away with the church entirely, concluded that Jesus was in fact the Jewish Messiah, that he was the Son of God, and that he actually, physically, rose from the dead. He knew this because of a special revelation, a personal revelation, but also because he spent so much time with Peter and Andrew and James and James the brother of Jesus and John and these other guys. And, and, and these men, these, these uh, incredibly brave men, documented what they saw, documented what they had heard, document what they had heard and gathered information from others who had seen the resurrected Jesus. And all of these documents were collected and they were protected, and they were, many years later, they were, they were combined into a single thing that we call the New Testament. And, and then years after that, they were combined with, with what we call the Old Testament, and together they have now become known as the Bible. But long before there was the B-I-B-L-E, there were men and there were women who were witnesses and friends of witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. And besides that, the story of Jesus wasn't worth telling apart from the resurrection. Apart from the resurrection, Jesus was just, just another Jewish rabbi who'd kind of gone off the rails. Um, Jesus was just another wannabe Messiah executed by Rome. And these guys, they come and they go. The people who were closest to Jesus are so excruciatingly honest as they record these things. It's one of the reasons that you really should take their accounts seriously. They don't write themselves in as saints, as heroes. They write themselves into the stories as doubters because they doubted. They doubt, just like some of you doubt. And doubting is not wrong. Doubting is the part of so many of our stories. They expected Jesus to do what all dead people do. They expected Jesus to stay dead, right? Nobody, nobody, not even his closest followers, even the most committed of them, nobody expected no body. <coughs> nobody was standing outside the tomb on Easter morning, counting down backwards from 10, waiting for something to happen. Nobody was out there because not even a single person who, who, who loved and was devoted to Jesus, they had all been determined that they had been fooled, that they had been tricked, that he was not who he had claimed to be. be. Because the problem with Jesus was not what he taught. The problem with Jesus is not what he did. The problem with Jesus is what he claimed about himself. And if he was telling the truth about who he was, well then clearly he's mixed up or, or maybe he was lying because you can't crucify the resurrection and the life. You can't execute God's Messiah that the Jews have been waiting hundreds of years for. You can't put the Son of Man to death. The other person that was an eyewitness and a follower of Jesus who gives us account is John, and you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And John was a witness both of the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And he details both for us. But like the others who followed Jesus, he didn't expect either. He didn't expect a crucifixion, 
and he most certainly did not expect a resurrection. Do you know what he expected? A king. John tells us that, that after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, just two miles from Jerusalem in, in a town called Bethany, a miracle that went beyond all of these other miracles because Lazarus hadn't been dead for a couple of hours. They'd already had the funeral. He was dead for four days and just, just a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem. So many Jewish people put their faith in Jesus after the resurrection of Lazarus because it was an undeniable act of God. For anybody who saw it, and many, many, many Jewish people put their faith in Jesus. And there was this, this groundswell of support. They had all this momentum. They had the crowd. John said, after the resurrection, many believed in him. But the problem was that it was too many who believed in him. And Jesus' enemies back in Jerusalem decided that they'd had enough right? Something had to be done. We got to take some action here. Because if they didn't do something about Jesus, in their own words, the, the whole world will go after him. They knew Jesus was coming to Jerusalem for Passover. The city was going to be crowded. And they decided this would be the best opportunity to take him out. So they would wait until after the festivities are all kind of over. The people are leaving the city. We got thousands and thousands of visitors and travelers in the city at that time. So there's just a huge crowd. And they, they'd find a way to isolate Jesus, to cut him away from the crowd, and then they would arrest him. And then they would make sure that, that they convince, could convince Rome to execute him. And so Jesus and his disciples, they leave the area of Bethany. And now they're moving towards Jerusalem. And the crowd knows he's coming, right? The city is full of spies, and the city is full of fans. There is so much patriotic zeal in, in Passover in Jerusalem. Um, Passover was a reminder for the Jews that God, once upon a time, had long ago delivered the people from the bondage of Egypt. And they hoped that one Passover would come along and God would deliver the nation from the bondage of Rome. Perhaps this was that Passover. Because there was so much momentum behind Jesus. Perhaps it would be during Passover that he would finally rip off that rabbinic robe and declare himself king. And they were excited. And as he makes his way into the city, he's met by hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of fans on the side of the road who are declaring him Lord. Declaring him king. Hosanna! Hosanna! And it gets political very quickly. He comes into the city just a few days before the final Passover Sabbath. He makes his way to the temple and he teaches and he preaches and he works his way freely through the city and people are watching him at all times. Those who are fans and those who are spies waiting for that moment, waiting for the, when they can carve him away from the crowd. And while he's out there, Judas finally just runs out of patience. And he goes to the temple leaders and he says, I can isolate him from the crowd. I can help you out. I can isolate him and his few followers at a time that it will be easy for you to just swoop in and arrest him. And he does this deal. Toward the end of that week, after he came into the city, Jesus celebrated the final Passover with the 12. And while he's there, he increases their expectation that perhaps this will be the time that he's going to declare himself king. And while they're having that meal, Jesus announces that he's going to establish a brand new covenant. For these Jewish young men who'd been raised listening to Torah and being taught the prophets, they knew 
that the prophet Jeremiah had prophesied that one day God would in fact declare a brand new covenant and it's with, with his people. And Jesus indicated that this is that time. I'm about to inaugurate the covenant with all of humanity that God promised so many years ago. A covenant, he said, that will be established. When he said this, they had just no category to put it into. It would be established in his blood. In his blood? And, and, and then he said that the terms and conditions of this new covenant are going to be really, really simple. And once upon a time, the terms and conditions of, of a covenant was very, very complicated because they were given to a very, very specific group of people. But this covenant was for the whole world. This is an arrangement between God and the entire human race. And the terms and conditions were going to be very, very simple. It is one new command. You are to love each other the way that I have loved you. You are to love each other, not the way that you've been loved, not the way that you want to be loved. This isn't a do unto others as you would have them do unto you thing anymore. This is a whole other thing. Gentlemen, he says to the disciples, you are to love each other. You are to love the world the way that I have loved you. And the next day he would go out and put on a demonstration of love that would take their breath away. And this was to be the trademark. This was to be the brand of this brand new movement. Clearly, they thought, he is about to declare himself king. Clearly, he's about to do something for the nation. But unbeknownst to them, Jesus was about to do something for you. For you. For the whole world. And they leave the meal that night. And as you know, Judas betrayed Jesus. He's worked it all out. He's isolated Jesus from the crowd. He's in the garden. And Judas knows his patterns. Judas knows his habits. Jesus is arrested. And he's taken to the high priest where he's falsely accused and he's beaten. And later, they drag him to Pilate because they wanted Jesus to be executed quickly. they got to get this done fast before the crowd changes their mind about who this false Messiah really is. So they, they drag him to Pilate. Pilate doesn't want to have anything to do with it, but they convince Pilate to at least talk to him. And so Pilate comes out after talking to him and says, seriously? I can find nothing wrong with this man. There are no charges here that are worthy of death. <coughs> and they say he must die. He must die. And, and so Pilate gives in and he decides, you know what? I'm going to have him flogged, right? I'll have him beaten within, within an inch of his life. And surely after that, when I bring him out in this beaten and, and broken and bloody wannabe king, surely then the crowd will change and, and, and they won't force me to execute their king. And so he has Jesus flogged and he brings him out and he's, he comes back out looking for mercy from the crowd. And instead they say, no. No, it's not enough. He must die. He must die. And because he claims to be the son of God, he must die because he claims to be a king. And Pilate, <laughs> he claims to be a king, right? So if you're a friend of Caesar, you cannot be a friend of this man. And you cannot allow this man to live. 
Pilate feels the pressure. Pilate relents. He gives in. John, who was there for all of this? He says, John 19, chapter, uh, John chapter 19, verse 16. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. 17, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull. John is writing this uh, as an old man, thinking back, remembering what had happened. And so he's dictating this to someone probably because he's probably too old to even see, probably can't write by this time. He's dictating this. And someone's taken this down in Greek, and it's Greek that they're writing in it because that's the language of the empire, or at least the section of the empire that they're in. And the idea was that this was not a story for Jews. This was a story for the whole world. It wasn't for a part of the world. It was for the whole world. So you write it in the language of the people. Jesus was taken to the place of the skull. Verse 18, and there they crucified him with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. No details are given. No details are necessary. Everyone who would hear this story in the first century, everyone who would hear this story in the second century, they had all seen, or at least seen the aftermath of a crucifixion. You don't forget it. You don't describe it. John records the words of Jesus from the cross. John gives us a detail that would be unnecessary unless it were true. He gives us a detail that would be really easy to discount or show that it wasn't true unless it was true. John said that as he's standing there gazing and wanting to look away, but gazing, wanting to look away, he stood beside Mary, Jesus' mother, and Jesus said to him, John, Mary is now your mother. Mary, John is now your son. And this is Jesus' way of saying, please take care of my mom. John said, I was there at the cross. I heard him say that from the cross to me. And then I heard him say his last words, it is finished. And then he said, I watched. Verse 30, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He died. And, and, and then John does the most unusual thing. These are words that, it, that if you were just reading the gospel on your own, you, just, you would just read right on by them. You skip right on by them because they don't seem significant. They don't seem to carry any meaning, and yet they are extraordinarily important. John pauses, reflects, and then makes this statement. Not for his immediate audience, but for future generations. For us. For you. And here's what he writes. The man talking about himself, the man who saw it, he talks about himself in the third person, John 19, 35. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. I'm swearing to you, this is exactly how it happened. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that, and then it's as if John reaches out kind of, kind of through the ages and grabs each of us by the shoulders and he looks us in the eye and he says, so that you may also Believe. Even though you were, you were not there, use my eyes. Trust my eyes. I was there. Trust that I'm telling you the truth and that you would also would respond like I responded to the stories that you may believe. To which we may respond, well, you know what? That's easy, John. So far, so good, right? So far, we've got a wannabe Messiah that gets executed by Rome. Sure. I believe. 
right? So far, you've got, you got a rabbi who kind of went off the rails and fooled his followers and finally gets caught by the religious leaders. They catch up with him. They got rid of him. Yeah, sounds about right. I can see that happening. I believe that. So far, Rome crucifies another wannabe king. This stuff's really easy to believe. And John would say, no, 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 not that part. It's the next part. Not that part. It's, the, it's this next part that I know you're going to have a hard time believing you, but I promise you, I swear to you, my testimony is true. What happened next? Happened. Next. I was there. I saw it all. Later, he said, John 19, 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea, specific names, so much detail, asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. And why would you do that? Well, because it's illegal to bury a crucified body. You're not allowed to have them. They put them on the garbage heap. Unless you bribed someone, like the centurion on site, or in this case, Pilate. With Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body away. And he was accompanied by somebody that showed up earlier in John's gospel. John chapter 3, it's Nicodemus. Verse 39, he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. 75 pounds of stuff that they would use to embalm the body. Why would he do that? Because that's what you do to honor and to prepare a dead body. Because these men fully expected this dead body to do what all dead men always do. Stay dead. Verse 40, and after taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This is in accordance with Jewish burial customs. That's John's way of sort of remembering, oh yeah, uh, people who are going to hear this account, hopefully when they read this account, hopefully in the future when they do this, they, they might not know what Jewish burial customs are. So I want them to understand what happened at such an incredibly important moment. <clears throat> Verse 41, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. 42, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. This is their way of saying uh, they were in a hurry. The, the sun's about to set. Once the sun set, the day of preparation is in, in advance of the Sabbath. Once the sun set, sets, it's the Sabbath, and then none of this work that they're doing is lawful as soon as the Sabbath begins. And so they hurriedly prepared Jesus' body for burial. They, they put him in this tomb, this cave, and they had their slaves roll a stone in front of it. And then they left. And John along with Peter and perhaps others, but for sure Peter and John, they disappear into the city as well. And we don't know what John did that night. We don't know what John and Peter talked about that night. But they knew, together, looking each other in the eye, they knew that these last three years of their life, just a waste of life. Nothing would ever be the same again. And they were so convinced that Jesus was who Jesus said he claimed that he was and the fact that he was arrested so quickly and, and he was crucified so quickly, these, these events all happened so quickly. They were just beginning to catch up with what was happening emotionally. We don't know what they did that night. We don't know what they did on Saturday. But John tells us that early Sunday morning, they were awakened, assuming that they had slept at all. Uh, they were awakened to someone banging on the door. 
And certainly their first thought has got to be, oh my goodness, the soldiers have found us. Then they realize, you know what? Roman soldiers don't knock and wait for permission to come in, right? They just kick the door in and there they are. And so they go to the door and they open the door and there's Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was one of Jesus' most devoted followers. She had followed Jesus for a long time because Jesus had delivered her. Jesus had performed a miracle for her. She was one of the women that followed Jesus and she was so grateful because Jesus continuously elevated the dignity of women and he elevated the dignity of children and he elevated the dignity of everyone. And she was brokenhearted like all the women followers were when Jesus was crucified. So she's banging on the door and they open the door and she's panicked, she's sobbing. They can barely understand what's going on. It's hard to pick it out. What she's saying when she's trying to get it out to Peter and John in, in John chapter 20, verse two, <coughs> they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. We went to the tomb to make sure that his body was properly prepared. The stone was rolled away. We looked inside and there was nobody. No body. Someone, and she assumes what anyone would assume, not a miracle, not a resurrection. No one writes themselves into this story as heroes or believers. None of them believed Jesus would rise from the dead. Who could believe that someone would rise from the dead? Not anyone then. Not anyone now. And so she looks into this empty tomb and she assumed what you would assume in the first century. She uh, assumed what you would assume in the 21st century. Somebody has stolen the body. Someone has taken the body of our Lord and we don't know where they, whoever they are, put him. And John tells us, that whereas they'd been hiding the night before, suddenly they felt the urgency of the moment and they knew where Jesus had been buried. They knew where the body had been put. So John 20, verse 3. So Peter and the other disciple, this is again John, third person, speaking about himself, um, started for the tomb, verse 4. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, right? Now here's an interesting detail, and I got a theory about this one. By the time that John dictated this, I think he kind of chuckled a little bit, remembering this. By this time, Peter's already been executed in Nero's Rome. And he thought to himself, I think it's safe to tell this detail. I can let this out now. Peter's not here to be embarrassed. I outran him to the tomb. I mean, that's what happened. It's the truth, right? People should know the truth. I'm going to tell them the truth. And then John steps back and he realizes, okay, okay, okay. If I'm going to tell... That part of the story, I got to tell the whole story. So John says when he, get, when he got there, he's outside the tomb, John 20, verse 5. He, which the I, it's John, bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Okay, I'll be honest, I didn't go in. I'm fast, but I didn't go in. Why? Because it's dark. It's a tomb. It's a little creepy. I don't want to do that. Such honesty, right? No hero kind of making there. He, he, he's as confused as all of Jesus' followers were on this first Easter morning. And he said, then, then eventually, my friend Simon finally caught up. Verse 6, then Simon Peter came along 
and went straight into the tomb. And why did he go straight into the tomb? Because he's Simon Peter, and that's just how Simon Peter rolls. Simon Peter didn't wait. He spoke too soon. He acted too soon. He was always getting into trouble. Straight into the tomb. And John says, here's what we saw. We saw the strangest thing. We saw what we did not expect to see. Because when someone steals a body, they take the body, you know, and, and, and everything with it. But what we saw in that moment convinced us that the world had changed. Our world had changed. John 20, verse 6, he saw the strips of linen lying there. 7, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. This wasn't a mess. This wasn't a rushed job. Thieves would not take the time to disembalm or unwrap the body and 75 pounds worth of spices. And John musters up the courage to step inside. He says, I'll admit, finally, I was late. I'm here now. John 20, verse 8, finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. Did I mention that I was first? Did I mention that I'm faster than Peter? I want you to know that part. And then John gives us his formula. And this is the formula that we find throughout John's gospel. This is the formula that he wants to leave his readers with. He, he writes it intentionally so that you see this because it takes us to the very heart of the Christian faith. John said, speaking of himself again, continuing in verse 8, he saw. And when he saw, he put two and two together. He saw and believed. And his world changed. Because this resurrection of Jesus reframed his entire life. It reframed everything about his life. Suddenly, it dawns on him that everything that Jesus taught was true. Everything that Jesus said about God the Father, true. He realized that in that moment, when they'd had that difficult conversation, that final Passover, when Philip says, hey, Jesus, just show us the Father and we'll be good. And then Jesus did that weird thing that should have caused everybody to just get up and leave the room. Jesus looks at Philip and he looks at the rest of the guys in the room and he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm as close to understanding what God the Father is like that you're ever going to get. Why do you think that I came? And in that moment when it dawns on John that we don't know where Jesus is right now, but clearly he's risen from the dead. I saw him crucified. I saw him die. I saw him embalmed. I saw him buried. And he has risen. And suddenly everything kind of just lines up for John. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? He invited a tax collector to follow him. He elevated the dignity of every single person. He spoke to centurions, the rich, the poor, the empowered, the disempowered. The God of ages has stepped down from glory to wear my sin and to bear my shame. That was his message. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And don't ask me to explain it. I don't know how it works. All I can say is that the Word became flesh. 
The word that was God became flesh and dwelt among us. The best way I can describe it is this. Is it's as if the light of the world entered the world and then he lit up the world for us. And on that Easter morning, when I recognized that he had risen from the dead, it all came together for me. So John and Peter and the others, they would eventually see Jesus alive from the dead and they would have conversations. You should read them. They're in the Gospels. You should really see. John records these conversations, but one in particular I want to draw to your attention. When Jesus was crucified and everyone knew that the game was over and there was no movement to keep moving, there was no cause to keep pushing forward, there was nothing to keep alive because Jesus had declared just too much about himself. This wasn't like some other movements where you, um, in, in culture where you, you, you have a leader and the leader goes away or the leader's assassinated and the people want to keep the dream alive, to keep the teaching alive, keep, keep the stuff alive, right? There was no teaching to keep alive because Jesus, his message was just so much about himself. So th there was no future. And, and they realized there was no future. And because of that, they scattered. Peter and John stayed in town. Some of the disciples went back to Bethany where Lazarus lived. Some of the disciples, we, we just don't know where they went. They just knew that there was now a price on their heads. And one of those disciples was Thomas. And John gives us the detail of, of Jesus' uh, first encounter with Thomas. We go to John chapter 20, starting at verse 24. Now Thomas one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. 25, so the other disciples told them, we have seen the Lord. Jesus' sightings are, are circulating all over Jerusalem and in that vicinity. And apparently Thomas heard about this. That people are saying that Jesus is back from the dead. And Thomas makes his way back to the area. Makes his way back into the city. And, and, and he searches around and he finally reconnects with the disciples. And they're like, Thomas, where have you been? You don't know what you've missed right? The Lord is alive. <coughs> but Thomas, he isn't superstitious. Thomas just felt like he spent three years of his life chasing a false Messiah. He's not going to spend the rest of his life now chasing a ghost and a rumor. Verse 25, but he says to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put, put my hand in, into his side, I will not believe. John, buddy, I love you, but your words are not enough for me. Peter, love you, love your passion, but I think you're seeing things. The rest of you guys, I love you guys, you've got great memories together, but no, no, I'm just not going to dedicate the rest of my life talking about a dead man who came back to life, not unless I see him. And honestly, who can blame him? right? So much detail. So a week later, a week later, John 20, 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And John says, I know this is odd, okay? I, I get that. But I'm telling you, this is how it happened. Please just listen. My testimony is true. I have suffered for what I believe. I have been exiled for what I believe. I'm telling you, this is how it happened. We're in the room, all right? And the doors, I promise you, the doors were locked. Still 26. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and he stood among them and said, Peace.
be with you. And of course he said, peace be with you, because he scared us to death. God just came in out of nowhere. And, and then he looks at Thomas, verse 27, and then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Re re reach out your hand. Put it in my side. It's me. And the, the literal Greek translation of this verse um, sometimes goes a little wonky in some of our English Bible translations, so it's literally this. You can see this in the NASB. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. John included this little piece of narrative because, again, it goes back to his central theme. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. 29, then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. I understand why you doubted, all right? I understand why you didn't believe. I totally get it. Thomas, you're just like the rest of these other guys. Don't let them fool you, okay? And don't let, let them give you some sort of lame nickname like Doubting Thomas because none of them believed. All of them doubted. Every single one of them doubted. Not a single guy in this room believed I had risen from the dead until they saw him. Even when they looked in the, that empty tomb, they didn't know what was going on. Don't be deceived. Don't be an unbeliever. Be believing. And then, you ready for this? At this moment, Jesus leaves his immediate context and he kind of looks through the ages again, going forward as well. And he looks at you and, and, and he looks at me and he leaves his immediate context, knowing that this story will be told for generations and for centuries. So with you in mind, with me in mind, he says to this group gathered that day, verse 29, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas, you believe because you have seen me. But blessed is that future generation. Blessed are the people that come after you. Blessed are the people that you tell. John, blessed are the people that read your account. Matthew, blessed are the people who are going to read what you have written down as well. Peter, blessed are the people that, that are going to read your account. Blessed are those future generations that hear and believe but have not seen. Then John closes his account with this. He closes it with an invitation for all of us. His invitation is really simple. It's what he said throughout his entire gospel. John would say, I just want you to believe that, right? And then I want you to trust in. I want you to believe that my testimony is true. That, and what I want you to believe is that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And once you're convinced that who he is who he claimed to be, I want you to take one more step. One more little step. I want you to place your trust in. I want you to believe that. I want you to trust in. I want you to believe that. I want you to believe in. And here's how he says it in John chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. It, it's not here so that you will know what happened. It's not a transfer of information in that way. These have been written by me, and I have ordered them intentionally, specifically, in such a way. Verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's the believe that. I want you to take my word for what I said. 
for what he said about himself. I want you to believe that. And I want you to do one more small thing. Verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. I want you to believe that. But I want you to personally trust it. Because there came that morning that sealed, that, that, that punctuated, that authenticated the promise. Something happened. His buried body began to breathe. And out of the silence, and that we thought was going to be silent forever, the roaring lion declared, the grave has no claim on you or on me. For God so loved the world, John concluded after being with Jesus, that he gave his only son, the light of the world, the word become flesh, that whoever, and here it is, believes in him would not be lost to God, would not perish, but have. And John says, don't, don't ask me to explain it. I'm just telling you they would have eternal life. That was John's invitation, Jesus' invitation to John. And that's your heavenly Father's invitation to all of us. And my hope is that this Easter, this season, that it would become personal for you, or personal for you again. That based on John's account, you would believe that and that you would trust in. Kind Father, thank you for the story that plays out in front of us that we've heard, and maybe we've heard it so many times, but it changes us. God, thank you for that. And if we're in this place right now and we're trying to put together believe that and believe in, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would continue to work and bring clarity. Light that fire. Put a spark in us. Jesus, I believe that what you said about yourself was true. I confess that I have done many wrong things. I have sin. I have not even lived up to my own standards, let alone God's standards. I believe that you died on the cross so that I could ask you to please forgive me for all those things. Set me free from them. And I'm going to put my faith, I'm going to put my trust in you for my immediate future and my eternal future. Thanks for opening the door for us, Jesus. Amen. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And one day, every kingdom, every ruler, every principality, and every power shall bow their mortal knee to the rejected Nazarene. He, the Lamb of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, shall reign in regal glory over everything in, below, and above the earth in heaven. He shall be the judge of all creation, and his kingdom shall never end.
Take your chances with the God of second chances. Jesus didn't die just to take you out of hell and and put you into heaven. He died to take himself out of heaven and deposit himself into you. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So we say, Hail, the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail, the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all He brings, risen with healing in His wings. And mild He lays His glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to give them second birth. Hark! The herald angels sing. Glory to our resurrected King. Thank you for your presence with us this morning. Lord Jesus, go with my friends as they go, wherever it is that they need to go. And as they go, Remind them that they are blessed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may be seated.